Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome, genies. It is America's family history show, Extreme Genes, and ExtremeGenes.com. Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, we've got guests today and uh, some really good ones, too. Lou Del Bianco is going to be on. And Lou has an interesting family story because his grandfather was an Italian immigrant and wound up being like the main guy who sculpted the faces on Mount Rushmore. And when Lou and his family learned that at Mount Rushmore, there was hardly a mention of their grandfather anywhere, they went to work and dug up all kinds of information about how Borglum, the designer of Mount Rushmore, couldn't have done anything without Lou's grandfather. And you're going to want to hear the whole tale that's coming up. Then later in the show, we're going to talk to a woman from New Hampshire, Kathy Furs, talking about tying your family history and ethnicity traditions to your wedding dress and ceremonies. A lot of people are doing this now, and she's all a part of it. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, if you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter, we would encourage you to do that. I give you a blog each week. We give you links to past shows and present shows and links to stories that you're going to really connect with as a genealogist. Just sign up at ExtremeGenes.com. Yeah, it's free. Right now, let's head out to Boston and speak to the very deep-voiced David Allen Lambert, who is uh, j- just enduring one of those difficult times. How you feeling there, bud? I've had a different voice for the past three days. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He is the yeah, chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society at AmericanAncestors.org. Dave, I know you've saved enough for us so that we can get our family histoire news today. Where would you like to begin? Well, I think the greatest story, and I know that you have also seen it because it's on Extreme Genes, is the one about the 81-year-old orphan. You know, when she was an orphan back in Ireland, in Dublin, back 81 years ago, didn't have any clue to her family. It's probably the case for many, many orphans that have never reconnected. But would you think that she would reconnect with her mother this year? (laughs) Yes. Her mother is 103 years old and still able to, well, almost carry on a conversation. They couldn't hear each other on the phone. Yeah. So they're obviously going to meet. She also has two half-brothers that are now in their 70s, and she did this with the help of a genealogist and a DNA test. Of course. And, you know, you think about that. A 103-year-old, her problem isn't her mind. Her problem is her hearing. And since this 81-year-old also has hearing issues, they got to get together, and they're working on it right now. So that's going to be a really exciting time and a great news story when it happens. And, you know, a similar one happened. Two sisters recently One had investigated their DNA and found out, well, they had a half-brother, and this half-brother looks just like Dad, but it's not a brother they ever knew, so obviously Dad had a secret. Well, the other sister, (laughs) well, she had a DNA test done, too. And it turns out they have different dads, Yeah, the same mom. Mom had a secret. Mom had a secret. So dad had a secret discovered from the sister testing first, and then mom had the secret from the sister testing second. And I guess it's caused quite a bit of disruption in that family, as you can understand. That story was in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, you think about all these different tests, and I always maintain when these results come out, every story has their own nuance. They're not all the same. They're not all that similar because everybody's story is different. And, boy, this one certainly fits that bill. 
It really does make me harken back to wanting to read Bill Griffith's A Stranger in My Jeans book. It's the truth. So many families find these very interesting things when they have a DNA test. I have a story about a different kind of family tree. Not the type you have on your wall or look on your computer program to see or online. This one happens to be a Japanese story. In Kawaguchi, Japan, near Tokyo, there is a fifth-generation bonsai tree store. In there was a robbery recently, and unfortunately, seven trees were stolen, including one particular one that's 33 inches tall that happens to be over 400 years old. Oh, And these trees are like family to the owners and have had them for many generations. And their request is, please return our children back to us. And if you are going to keep it, basically, please make sure you water it. I guess they're very fragile, even though they've lived so long, a week without water can kill them. Paul G. Allen, we've talked about last year, and of course, this gentleman's efforts to find lost World War II ships, including the USS Indianapolis, it really is heroic. You're putting closure for many final chapters of the lives of sailors, some of them well into their 90s, that lost crew members and dear friends during World War II. They've now located the USS Hornet. You know, that name may not be uh, something that a lot of people today recognize, but the Hornet was the ship that carried Doolittle's raiders across to Tokyo in 1942 and really shifted the war in the Pacific. And, And so this is an iconic carrier from World War II. Amazing. It is. And 111 out of the 2,200 sailors on board did not return after it sank on October 26, 1942. So this is the first time it's been seen by Americans since then. Wow. It's a pretty amazing story. Well, this week's Blogger Spotlight is shining on Nancy Lowe. Nancy Lowe has a blog called Sassy Jane Genealogy Blog. And this is a family history blog for American and European genealogy. You can find it at sassyjanegenealogy.com slash blog. And she blogs a couple of times a month. I'm sure you might want to check it out. If you happen to be in Beantown, swing by American Ancestors, the New England Historic Genealogical Society Library in Boston. All right, David. Great stuff. Thanks so much. I hope you feel better. Clear that throat up, okay? Because I know you got talks to do all over the place. All right, buddy. You take care. We'll see you soon. And coming up next, we're going to talk to a man in Portchester, New York, whose Italian immigrant grandfather was key to putting together Mount Rushmore. you got to hear their family story tying around that. And, you know, once in a while, you grasp onto a piece of your family history and you want the world to know about it. You want your people to get the proper credit for what they may have done or maybe not so much credit for what they shouldn't have done. Nonetheless, we got a guy like that on the line right now. He's Lou Del Bianco, and he's in uh, Portchester, New York, not too far from my old stomping grounds in Connecticut. And uh, Lou, nice to have you on the show. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. You know, your grandfather was quite the guy, and I guess you got your name from him, yes? I did. I did. He was in Italy uh, the day I was born and um, made a deal with my mom and dad to name me Louis. Originally, it was supposed to be Luigi. He was going to give my parents $1,000, and my mother said, give us 500 and we'll call him Louis. And that's <laughs> well, it's a, it's a little different way of doing things here in the United States <laughs> than Italy, right? <laughs> I was his first grandson and his, and his namesake. Really important to him. And I have such great memories as a little boy, feeling that connection and that bond. When I was in second grade, he had already passed on, and I found a pamphlet about Mount Rushmore, not knowing what it was. I asked my mom. She told me what my grandfather did, and 
I was a very shy kid, but this gave me such a confidence that I wanted everybody to know about my grandpa. So I remember going to my class and saying, I want to tell you about my grandpa. That's amazing. Uh, now, he was a sculptor at Mount Rushmore. Is that right? He was the chief carver on Mount Rushmore, which meant his job was in the refinement of expression in the four faces, the finishing of the faces. The carving, yes, but the refinement. So when you see the humanity in those four faces and how lifelike they are, that is from the hands of my grandfather. That's amazing. You know, I was just there last year. I had never been to Mount Rushmore, and wife Julie and I just decided we were going to take a road trip for our vacation last year, and we went there, and it's just astonishing because they also had to work the faces around the way the light would hit them. That yep. in itself is an art. And so he worked with Borglum, obviously, who was the man who was kind of behind what the design was supposed to look like. So your grandfather, Luigi, essentially brought to life what Borglum envisioned. Yes, there were uh, roughly 400 people who worked on the mountain at different times. A lot of them were unemployed coal miners who lost their jobs during the Depression and were bought on by Borglum, trained by Borglum and my grandfather. But it was somebody of my grandfather's ability that Borglum needed to translate his ideas with that chiaro scudo, that play of light and shadow that you just referenced. And that's a big reason why Borglum picked that mountain was because of the strong eastern exposure of the sun hitting those faces. And so it was my grandfather that perfected the shafts that were coming out of the pupils where the light would hit it and cast shadows that created different emotions. Yeah, my grandfather had a very close relationship with Borglum. He was basically his right-hand man. Sure, of course. Did you ever get to speak with him at all about this? No, I was six years old when he passed away, and he never spoke about Rushmore to his own children, my father, my uncle, and my aunt. Why? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I asked my uncle about it, and he said, you know, Papa was very proud. And he said, and I was a young guy, and I wasn't thinking about Rushmore. And that was a regret of my uncle, that he never talked to his father about Rushmore. And he got really interested in the 80s about his dad and wanted to know more about his contribution. And this book, The Carving of Mount Rushmore, came out by Rex Allen Smith. And when it didn't mention my grandfather at all, my uncle was incensed. And he said, you know, this is like talking about the New York Yankees and not mentioning Joe DiMaggio. Right. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, right. It, his anger brought me back to my connection to, to my grandfather. And so we decided that we would go to Washington to research the Bordlam papers because Bordlam was the genius and the innovator behind Mount Rushmore. Without him, there would have been no Mount mm -hmm. Rushmore. That's right. And if we could find testimonials from him about my grandfather, we would have some proof about his contribution. And, and my uncle found just amazing documents where my grandfather is cited by Bordlam as being better than any three men he could find in America for this kind of work and that he was the only intelligent, efficient stone carver who understood the language of the sculptor. This is how much Bordlam relied on my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather trained a lot of these unemployed miners, and they should be given credit. It was amazing what they were able to do, because they, they could only go so far. Once you got to a certain point, you needed trained hands to refine these faces, and that's what Luigi was able to do. That's an incredible story, and it must be amazing for you to actually hold these original documents relating to this incredible national monument put together by Borglum and your grandfather and many others who are unknown as far as history is concerned, and to just hold that and go, wow, this is just a piece of it. You must have felt something at that moment. I did, and I did, and I really feel that my grandfather is a very worthy representative of all of these unknown, these anonymous artisans who worked for great artists and didn't have the ability to put their signature on anything. 
I think uh, this is actually common in a lot of different fields. And I look at my own history, and you know, my, my father was not a composer so much, but he did the orchestrations for the composers. And then I had a great-great-uncle whose boss owned a theater in New York on Broadway, and the idea came to the owner of creating what they called an elevator stage, where you could change basically the sets on the stage by raising it and lowering it, and thereby cutting down time in between scenes. And so this great-great-uncle of mine was the one who actually brought that to life. And and so I really? think it's, it's a very common thing that there's always somebody who doesn't get a lot of credit, but they really were the ones who were the pragmatic ones in the team. So tell us now, there was no recognition of him there at Mount Rushmore. And what did you guys do to get that? Well, basically, I made a pilgrimage to Mount Rushmore. This was in 1988. I asked them, how is Luigi Del Bianco being acknowledged? He was, in fact, the chief carver. They showed me a plaque of all 400 people who worked on the mountain, from laborers to drillers to right. secretaries to the guy who put the soul into the faces. I saw that, yes. And they basically acknowledged the, quote, workers as a group. And Mount Rushmore has embraced that narrative, that workers under Borglum's tutelage brought these faces to life. And I said to them, this is not the whole story. These men definitely deserve credit for the work that they did, but you need to know that the refinement of the faces was done by my grandfather. And once my uncle and I gathered up these 75 documents with all this irrefutable evidence about how Borglum said there's only really one trained carver on the work, and that's Bianco, we shared the papers with Mount Rushmore, and they just kept saying, your grandfather was a worker, and we only acknowledge the workers on Rushmore as a group. The only person we single out is Gusson Borglum and his son Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And they stuck to that narrative. And what I started to learn, my uncle and I started to learn, was that they didn't think my grandfather wasn't important enough to be given credit. They thought he was too important. Oh. He was he was a threat to their narrative. Right. Uh, Interesting. He disturbed their narrative. They had literally created a museum just for the, quote, workers as a group. And the Del Bianco family comes along and says, well, you're not telling the whole story. There's a special story here about Borglum's assistant and his true right-hand man, and that's Luigi Del Bianco. So... Uh, They basically did what most bureaucracies do. They try to exasperate the pursuant, which is myself and my uncle, hoping that we'll get tired of pursuing them and go away. We didn't. We didn't go away. And finally, (laughs) I was able to... Finally, I was able to get the ear of Cam Shali, who was the director of all of the national parks for the Midwest region of the country. And he realized that there was something going on here that had to be resolved. He said, there's enough of this. He says, we've got to get to the bottom of this. He offered to send two historians to my house, and they went through the papers with a fine-tooth comb and unanimously recommended recognition. Wow. And that plaque has finally been unveiled at Mount Rushmore at the Visitor Center. So that everyone who goes there knows that, yes, a group of untrained miners miraculously helped bring this mountain to life, but they were led by Borglum's assistant, uh, the chief carver, uh, my grandpa. That is incredible. And for you to go after it for so long and not get frustrated, just say, we're not going away. And so when did the recognition finally come? Um, Well, before I get into that, no, it (laughs) was... I had many, many moments of frustration. I I gave up many times, I'm not going to lie, but I always went back to it. And every time I went back to it, I went back with fresh ears and fresh eyes. That kind of made the difference. In terms of the actual uh, ceremony, that happened on September 16, 2017, not that long ago. No, just a year and a half. 
just about a year and a half. And one of the things that the historians urged me to do was to write a book about it. He said, you need to tell your grandfather's unique story from a genealogical perspective, from a perspective of legacy, an American story. And he said, you've got to use these documents to tell his story, and you've got to detail the ridiculous odyssey that you went on to get him recognized. And so I have a book published called Out of Rushmore Shadow, the Luigi Del Bianco story. And it's a very personal book about my grandfather's immigrant story, his time at Rushmore and the challenges that he faced, and also the 25 years it took. That's fantastic. How, how many pages? Uh, it's about 358 pages, and it's, it's not a dry academic treatise by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a professional storyteller, so while you're reading it, you, you'll feel like I'm sitting right next to you saying, I want to tell you about my grandpa, filled with photos and, and documents never seen before about the, the carving of Rushmore. A lot of these are from my grandfather's personal collection. He was a camera freak, so he took a lot of photos. Wow, so you got stuff in there nobody else has ever seen. Photos of him carving the eyes of Jefferson, repairing the lip of Jefferson, lots of great stuff. He's Lou Del Bianco, and Lou, thanks so much for coming on and sharing this story. I think it's really inspiring that uh, you have such a love for your grandfather, who you only knew for a few years, and uh, were able to do this to honor him. And how do you think he'd react to this, by the way? I'd like to think he'd be proud of me. I, I felt he was proud of me when I was a little boy. And like I said, the first person I remember hugging me, and this is kind of like my way of hugging him back. LuigiMountRushmore.com is the website if you want to find out more about the story. Thanks so much for coming on, Lou. Great talking to you. Oh, thank you, Scott. And coming up next, recently I was out searching for news stories to share with you on ExtremeGenes.com and came across a newspaper up in New Hampshire, a little place called Sentinel Source. And it's from uh, Keene, New Hampshire. And they talked about, it seems that more and more people at their weddings are trying to add a little family history touch, something from their background, from their cultural background, additional heritage touches to your wedding. And how many people now are starting to use their cultural backgrounds, longstanding traditions to add some new aspects to their weddings. And one of the people who's involved in helping people in that area is my next guest. She is Kathy Furs. She's with a place called Country Bridals. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for coming on. Good morning. So tell me now, you've done this for some time. When did this really start becoming kind of a regular thing when it comes to weddings? It's been going on off and on actually through the years. Young women want to bring something maybe from their mom's gown where their gowns aren't quite in style, so to say, for today. Sure. But yet they'd like to bring something from their gown, their veil, other little touches into their wedding just to incorporate moms and grandmothers. Well, I would imagine it would be difficult to (laughs) actually fit into mom's or grandma's dresses. I mean, everybody's a different size, so I would imagine it's fairly rare to actually wear the original right without any alterations. So what kind of things do they take off of these dresses to incorporate into their own? I take pieces of lace or trim work and either add those pieces to the bride's choice of dress or to her veil. I've taken the trim off of the mother's bridal gown, the lace trim, and added it to the base of the a long-standing raw-edged veil. Okay. So that it just brings a piece of mom into the attire. Sure, especially when they're, they've passed, I would imagine that's really oh, meaningful yes. for somebody. Do you ever use anything from a male relative who's passed? Yes, I have. Huh. We've had a bride come in with a shirt that was her dad's. 
and we cut a piece out of the inside of it. It was one of his favorite flannel farming shirts, and we made a heart and put it inside her dress over her heart. Oh, how beautiful. And we had another young woman also bring in her brother's shirt, and we did the same thing with that, making a heart, putting it inside the dress. So this is more of a heritage thing when it comes to those people. What about from foreign countries and and other parts of the world? Have you incorporated a lot of things that way? We worked with a bride who was from Rwanda. She had many different cultural aspects in her entire ceremony. We provided a lot of the American heritage, the white gown, the tuxedos, Mm -hmm. bridesmaids' dresses. But what they did is they brought many changes. They had three or four days of ceremony, and each day... Oh, (laughs) wow. Yes. That's a lot. It was very interesting. Yeah, I bet. Each day had a different type of celebration and different costume, as they called them, that they wore. Wow. The bridesmaids and the groomsmen all learned these different cultural dances. So this sounds like you had like four weddings in one there if you're providing all the costumes. We didn't provide the actual ones that they got from Rwanda. We provided all of the, you know, the white gown yeah. and the history. The Americanized stuff, yeah. The Americanized side, yes. Sure. What other countries have you dealt with? We've had a couple of Chinese and Japanese brides, and through, I believe there was one out of the Philippines. We have one right now out of France. But the Asian women bring the red dress and the white dress, Hmm. so they have, you know, a couple of changes depending on their history. Well, it sounds like it's uh, quite a fascinating thing when you have to deal with it. Do you find there are any things that you deal with that are kind of sensitive to families' past? Those don't usually end up coming up unless there's a real issue with it. Sure. A lot of those, you know, they really keep more private. I see. So it, it wouldn't be anything that would affect your work. No. How about the the Scottish folks? Do you ever make somebody a kilt? I have not made somebody a kilt, (laughs) but we have suggested there's a location in Keene that they can create all the different tartans for different wedding parties. So you've got assets right around you. Oh, yes. So what is is. the (laughs) oldest dress that you've ever actually dealt with that maybe you've renovated a little bit and the bride actually wore it as it was with some alterations for her, the oldest one? I want to say it was probably from the 50s. 60-year-old dress. Nothing from the 19th century. No. <laughs> no. And what's no, the... I've just taken...